hey guys, remember us? After what felt like a 300-month-long summer and a bit of restructuring of Anderson Media, we are back in action with some more amazing content for you all. In today's episode, we're talking with our cousin, Mark, a marketing strategy and business development powerhouse. He's got over 25 years under his belt, and we're soaking up every bit of what he's throwing down in episode seven of the Attention Seekers podcast. So listen now for his amazing breakdown of the four phases of strategic growth, implement them into your business, and watch the magic happen. Here we go. You are listening to the Attention Seekers podcast. Each week, we're bringing you amazing ways to grow the visibility of your business, the tools to increase your reach, and some pretty amazing and inspiring guests. So put the world on notice. It's time to get noticed. Let's go. From the minds behind the Anderson brand, here are your hosts, Daniel and Nicole. Today, we are talking with Mark, and we're talking about the four phases of the roadmap that he uses for his current clients for strategic growth. And I said strategic correctly, so I'm going to keep it to that one and let you talk now. (laughs) Well, thanks, Nicole. Thanks, Dan. Uh, And thanks for having me. You know, I think uh, I like a lot of what you guys are doing, and I think there's a lot of applicability to how something that stems out from really what was a lot of corporate needs, large corporate needs, can really transcend into uh, use for for businesses of of really all sizes and phases. So we developed this roadmap to strategic growth over a lot of years um, because most of the people who work in my company have gray hair on their head if they have any left at all. (laughs) Hey, I'm in that club. It's a a club that you get used to. Yes. (laughs) Um, and really what it stemmed out from is a lot of us have, uh, have been CEOs and we've had venture back companies and, and some of us have been in, in some significantly larger companies that we've taken public. And lots of times some of the blocking and tackling that you just assume is going to get done oftentimes doesn't. So we try to boil down in creating a methodology that we can use with clients who are really trying to grow more strategically and with more with more of a deliberate purpose as opposed to just swinging at every pitch that comes their way or or going after every type of account or, mm-hmm. or piece of business we we've come to realize that there's a smart way and a profitable way to achieve growth and then there's a haphazard way yeah. uh, so yeah. Um, based on a lot of the mistakes that we've all made ourselves, uh, we're trying to help others avoid some of them. And we broke it down into four phases uh, that really stem over the course of, you know, you can get through a process like this, depending upon the size and scope of your business. You can get through the first couple of phases that we can talk about in terms of sizing, planning, targeting, and positioning. You can really do that in a, in a matter of weeks up through a couple of months. It's really when you start to execute and you start to really move forward with taking your plans and bringing them to life, that it's an ongoing process and it's something that you have to continually evaluate and improve uh, in order to, to really get at the at the level of uh of of results that that people are ultimately looking for so we're talking the first the first phase you have is sizing and planning so what does that mean what would that mean in like say you're talking about our business which is fairly small still say we want to explode which we do Well, I mean, the first thing it starts with is people really being even knowing how to do goal setting, uh, because, yeah. you know, it's nice to say one thing in a vacuum and say, you know, we did uh, $100 in revenue last month, but next month we want to do a million. Uh, you know, it's it, 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 nice thought, nice pipe dream. Um, so we really start by helping to orient people to start to really get a handle on what are their key metrics. So when you talk about sizing and planning, it's starting to really get comfortable with understanding certain things that every business should know and as they as they define what's going to make for success 
And what are those key metrics that, that owners or salespeople should be thinking about all the time? So obviously revenue is one thing, how much, you know, how much you're looking to grow by when, um, and we've even developed a calculator, uh, a free calculator that people can use from our website if they want to start to play and do what we call sensitivity analysis, because everything that you're going to do yeah, it is, is a byproduct of something else. So if you tell me that, let's be more realistic, let's say you have a business that did $500,000 last year, and this year you want to do seven fifty. So that's a 50% year over year growth factor. Mm -hmm. So the first thing, which may, may be reasonable, may be unreasonable, depending upon the business, there's a lot of dynamics. But yeah. when you start your phase and you start thinking about, well, how am I going to achieve that? There's a, there's a few things you really need to know uh, that, that most of us would think are logical, but lots of times they get lost when, when people go to implement a business plan. Um, and, and it really gets down to a few key metrics. It's like, first is where is that growth going to come from? Is it going to come from my existing customers? Am I going to sell them more? Am I going to do more services for people who are already customers? Or am I going to get brand new logos, brand new accounts, and uh, what we call virgin territory where we've done no business in the past? Mm -hmm. And uh, those often, the sales pursuit and the marketing to reach those uh, things that are probably near and dear to your hearts uh, really require, um, in many cases, very different sets of plans and activities. Yeah. But before yeah. you even get to talking about plans or activities, you need to get, you need to level set on some metrics. You need to know, well, what percent growth am I looking to get from my existing customers versus new? And depending upon where your where your comfort level is, that's going to really dictate some what could be a very different type of, of marketing plan. Um, you also need to know how big is a new account, uh, you know, either when I'm starting or over time. So you may have a different uh, estimate. You might you might intentionally lower your price to try and get some new clients in the door. So your you know first initiative, your first uh, statement of work, your first uh, order might be might be smaller, but it might grow over time if you have a lot of other services that you find are easier to cross sell once you've earned somebody's confidence. So we put all of that into a, a dashboard, a one you know a one screen dashboard, so that business owners can really start to get comfortable and get a handle on setting how long are my time frames under which I'm setting my goals, how much of it's coming from new versus existing. What's my average deal size? How long does it take? What's my sales cycle? Um, and then what uh, a lot of things businesses don't think about is what level of attrition? How much do I lose each year? Even if I'm doing everything well, somebody is going to hate your guts at some point. Mm. <laughs> and, they're gonna, <laughs> and, and they're not going to, or they're just, or something's going to happen in their business that's going to cause them to not have the budgets that they had last year. And you're going to suffer some form of attrition. But a lot of businesses don't properly plan for that. So they think, oh, it'll be easy. I did X last year. I'll do X plus 20% this year. But they forget about the 15% that they lost. And now they're trying to get to 35%. And mm -hmm. you don't want to find that you don't want to find that out when it's too late. You want to be thinking about that and planning for it up front because it's going to impact, you know, what number of leads you need to be generating and what level of awareness you need to be generating in order to get enough of those opportunities through your funnel and ultimately out the other end as closed accounts. So there's a whole methodology that goes with it, but you could really boil it down to a few of those key variables. And then you can play around and say, well, if I did this, what impact would that have? If my average deal size went from 50,000 to 75,000, how many less accounts would I need to be going after? You know, if I expanded my geography from Southern California to Northern California, yeah, that might cost me more. I might need to spend some more in travel and entertainment, but um, is that now opening me up to either new vertical markets or other things that might not have been available to me. Those are some of the things that come out of the level of analysis that you do when you start. So, you know, again, you can get very complicated with that, but you don't have to. You can really start to at least put some core metrics in place that um, whoever is involved in 
executing and devising the growth strategy for the company, they should all be on the same page with. So, you know, when we work with clients, it's usually something like a two to four week exercise to really determine what level of readiness they have to start to really get down to the point of understanding and thinking of what are the marketing and sales tactics and resources that I'm going to need. So that's really what we consider phase one, sizing and planning. So do you feel, um, obviously with a lot of small businesses, they get that enthusiasm of the, the year one surge. And in this planning phase, I, f- I feel like there's a, there's a lot of optimism built into the planning because you're not out the gates yet. So what, what's your advice for a small business in this planning stage to have a little bit of humility and kind of a fallback plan like you mentioned? Um, what, what's your advice when you have a, a client come in with that kind of optimism? So to speak. That's a, it's a great question, Dan. Uh, first of all, you never want to you never want to pour water on the flame uh, because that optimism is could be their core differentiator. Uh, the 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 dose of reality that we use, and and again, we tend to use it with more established businesses, is actually the start of the second phase, which is targeting and positioning. It starts with really understanding where have you been successful. So we call it deconstructing historical successes and figuring out where have you really uh, done something where you've hit it out of the park and where you've got great client satisfaction or a great uh, net promoter score or you know something where you, know, uh, you could call up somebody and they'll be a reference for you um, without you even asking. Um, and when you realize, you know, out of all the work that you've done, and this is, so far, this is sounding very service centric, but you can apply a lot of it to products as well. Um, The way you quell that optimism is not everybody is going to be in that, uh, you know, (laughs) top echelon of, oh my God, I'll take a bullet for you, Nicole. (laughs) It'll be, uh, there'll be people who will be in, in various stages. So, Part of what we do and what any uh, business should be doing is thinking about where do your customers net out on, on, that, on whatever scale you're using for, uh, for satisfaction and how likely would they be to recommend you or to repeat uh, doing exactly what they did with you last time or do more with you. And once you get a sense of where they sit, uh, then it helps you temper back some of your expectations for how much growth you're going to get because you know in some cases even if you do everything right there are circumstances on the other side that don't enable them to take full advantage of what you've done for them so you know it's it's what we call in the investment world a haircut uh so anybody who's Anybody who's investing in a business and you go in and say, well, this is what our hockey stick revenue growth plan looks like for the next five years. The first thing a venture capitalist is going to do is is give it a haircut um, and say, "Okay, well, that's great. Nicole, I keep that enthusiasm. But in my estimates, I'm going to use 40 percent of that number as as what I'm basing as as a success factor. Um, so Dan, the way you do it is, is a, it's a bit of a reality check. It's, it's almost like writing your own couple of case studies right. and seeing how repeatable is what I do to other people. And that really is what kicks you right into the next phase on targeting and positioning. So we like to create something. Uh, we create a four by four matrix uh, because it's really easy for a lot of companies to say, well, I sell to fill in the blank. Uh, you know, I, I sell to, um, in my business, we do a lot in healthcare. So they might say, well, I sell software to hospitals and we'll say, that's nice. Who within the hospital is your decision maker? How many people do you have to talk to before you get to that decision maker? How long do they take? How long does it take them to schedule a meeting that doesn't even involve you? Um, you know, um, how, and, and as you go through that, it, it really leads you to, um, you know, to, to understand what are the perfect conditions under which somebody will buy your product or your service. And until you can really get down to understanding that somebody who you're talking to has the budget, 
has the need, has the authority, and can operate in a time frame that you know coincides with your time on this planet. Um, they're 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 not what you would call a highly qualified lead until they pass through all of those gates. So what we do in our next phase of targeting and positioning is we first figure out where have you been successful to date. What are those characteristics, those common characteristics? So if we found that you did really well in selling to a hospital in a metropolitan area with 300 beds who specializes in uh, cardiac care and trauma, um, we will then use whatever that criteria is to help find others that have similar criteria. And doing it at the company or the institution level is one level. Doing it at the decision maker is a second level. But then there's two more levels that you really have to hone in on. One is your business problems. You know, what exactly do you solve that represents your unique or strategic or competitive advantage? And what's the timing? What are the triggering events that take place that will enable you to be successful somewhere versus all those other people who just are window shopping and want to hear what you do, but don't really have any plans to buy anything this year. So we put all four of those into a matrix, um, which we call our R4. And um, with that, you know, it's, it's, and it's the four rights. So it's right organization, right decision maker, right business problems, and right triggering events. And you can't solve for all of that on your first phone call or on an email blast. Um, but if you're if you're aligning the right sets of activities and you know what that profile looks like of the person who is your highest probability buyer, uh, you can start to fill in those blanks as you develop a relationship with that targeted prospect. And um, when you get into things like sales forecasting, pipeline forecasting, and you start to rate your probabilities of closure, you can start to see as you check off more boxes and get more information and knowledge about what that organization and decision maker really need, um, that's when you can start to get deeper into your sales process and start to have a higher confidence level in your ability to actually close that account and put that into your revenue forecast. No, I, I love that, though. I love the four rights. You know, it's not a secret and it's not rocket science how you get to the four rights. It starts with really understanding your own DNA and understanding what makes for a good relationship where you could be successful and where your client is getting the success out of the work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's hard because you have to also think about what are you not good at? <laughs> where have you failed? And what were those conditions? And just as importantly as the four rights, make sure you have a list of those wrongs. And as soon as you start to see any of those exposing themselves during a sales process, uh, turn around and run for the hills <laughs> because uh, the opportunity cost of taking on a bad client or, um, or engaging in a bad set of circumstances is, is much bigger than just that, that one account. It could have detrimental effects on your whole business because you're, you're, you're taking away good resources and putting them in bad places. So, you know, a lot of people talk, a lot of people talk about targeting and positioning, you know, in sort of, a, you know, a theoretical marketing jargon way. And the way we tend to approach it is let's just be realistic about where have you been really successful? What are the characteristics of the people who you've engaged with? How much have you enjoyed the experience mutually, not just from your client side, but from your side? Um, and then ultimately, how do we find more people and more situations that are lookalikes? And we joke about it. It's like hitting, an, uh, it's like hitting, hammering in a nail. Once we figure out what that motion is, we want to slam it over yeah. and over and over again, as opposed to, you know, going out, you know, if we sold products to hospitals uh, and we were successful at getting one or two or three sold, you know, but we know that there are 50 more out there that, that have similar sets of needs let's not pick up and start selling to gas stations tomorrow, you know? 
Well, I, I think that's super important, because, especially in the startup stages, because I see this all the time where people are like, um, I'm just starting. I just want to, you know, I'm going to sell to everybody or I'm going to take this client even though they don't, you know, align with my business. And I don't think people understand how, like you said, detrimental that is to your business. Yeah, but it's really hard. I mean, because the realities are, and we've all been there, I've been in businesses that haven't had a lot of capital and we haven't had a lot of room to maneuver or even take the time to be as strategic as what we're talking about right now. And you basically swing at every pitch that comes your way. And, yep. you know, and you know, in baseball, the only good pitches are waist high fastballs. <laughs> um, but I've swung at many, many pitches that were in the dirt that <laughs> I should have never been swinging at. Oh, yeah, we all do it. We but, all do it. You know, but the idea of, oh, my God, that could be $5,000. That could pay yep. next month's rent. Um, you know, you, you get seduced by some of that. That's um, true. So, so, yeah, I mean, it is. It's, it's a hard thing sometimes that, you know, in a startup. But um, it, to the extent that people can start to employ that kind of thinking early, the effects as you get bigger and go to scale. And again, a lot of the companies that we work with are already past the $5 million revenue mark, and they're bringing us in to help them get to 50 million or 100 million. Um, but the same things hold for the company, you know, that it's doing $100,000 in revenue and wants to go to 300,000. You know, that that may be a, a low number on a, uh, you know, on an absolute scale, but it's huge on a relative scale. So the ability to pick and choose the right ones versus the wrong ones is, is just huge. So, um, so that's why we try and that's why I say this is applicable everywhere. And you have to be recognized, you're not going to get it 100% right. But mm -hmm. the more that you can start to employ even just elements of this in the day-to-day -day thinking, the better off you're going to be when you look back on your business six months or 12 months from the time at which you start. Um, and that's really what leads us into the next phase of execution. Because really, like when we're working with clients, we end that second phase in targeting and positioning with what we call a go-to-market plan. And it's, it's really important, whether you're using a consultant or just doing it on your own, a go-to-market plan, it has to be worth more than the paper it's written on. It has to be based on, you know, knowing that you've looked at the characteristics, knowing that you've really sized your market, knowing that you really understand the criteria of the people who you're going after and, um, and actually pinpointed them, done your research to say, okay, it's not enough to say, you know, that these are the characteristics. Let's do some research and really figure out who I want to be proactively talking to. Now, there's others that'll just come in and they'll discover you from your marketing or from a referral. Those are the nice to haves. Mm -hmm. But you want to determine, it's like, you know, for, for those of us who like to go fishing, if I get to pick the lake, I want to go to the lake that's stocked with the trout. I don't want to go to the lake that's been cleared out where there's one occasional fish that is, is going to get hungry every six months. Um, so <laughs> I think that for people who do a good job, if for us, you know, we tend to work in a business to business environment where a good successful go to market plan will identify maybe 250 to 300 targets. And that's about all that people can even wrap their arms around in terms of being able to, you know, engage in, in, in a meaningful set of uh, relationships, you know, starting with marketing to drive awareness and ultimately moving into sales where you're spending time and maybe even getting on an airplane and bringing, uh, you know, depending upon what you're selling, uh, you know, if you're selling software and you have to do a, a large demo, well, that takes time and that costs money. You want to make sure that by the time you're sitting down and spending a half a day in somebody's office, uh, that they're really well qualified, yeah. or if not well qualified, at least reasonably qualified <laughs> to, <laughs> you know, you don't want to go and, you know, find out that you've just spent a thousand dollars on airfare in a hotel and, um, and the person was really just window shopping and mm -hmm. didn't have any budget or any authority whatsoever. Um, and those are things that if you ask the right questions early and w without being, you know, overly aggressive, 
you, you have the right to ask those questions to make sure that it's a good use of your time and their time uh, to continue developing a relationship. So if you do all of that in the planning, you could quickly start moving into a selling motion, but there are other tactics that start to come to bear when you're, when you're really out there and you, you know, and you're really out there developing and getting more history and figuring out what's working and what's not. So we, we typically look at, at a year's worth of time uh, to start to really figure out what level of programs are working, um, where should I be spending more money on the marketing side to get uh, more qualified leads into my funnel, um, how much of that is digital and web versus how much of it might involve uh, telemarketing or other forms of, of advertising or promotion or PR. Um, and it's, it's, it's an art as much as a science. Uh, you, you know, you need to know enough about your markets and what types of things people pay attention to, where do they get their information from, how do they make decisions. Um, that's where all the homework comes in. Uh, but then there's no substitute for getting out there and actually testing it. And the idea of testing it is you're going to win some, you're going to lose some. But the key is when you lose, take whatever you've learned from that loss and plow it back in to make you smarter for the next one so you don't make the same mistake or you just learn that, ooh, this is starting to sound just like that one. And that guy wasted a lot of my time and asked mm -hmm. me a lot of questions and ultimately didn't do this. I better ask this these sets of questions on my next call. And you, you and it actually it improves your confidence as well when you start to have more of that experience behind you. Uh, to that end, a lot of people have trouble um, kind of hiring people to do sales within their business. I know um, it, it's kind of, it's hard to translate um, your enthusiasm for your own business to someone else. So what, what mm -hmm. would be your advice um, for someone that's looking to increase their sales department? Uh, great, great question, Dan. Um, first off, there are, there are certain types of characteristics and it's more than just the people. I mean, it really gets into your whole philosophy. Uh, well, first off is before you even think about their ability to sell, the first question I would ask is, is this the type of person I want to be spending time with? Is this somebody I want in my life? <laughs> Every, <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> interacting with me on a daily basis. Um, do they bring different skills that I don't have? Um, or are you know, or are they naturally curious? Curiosity is actually one of the best attributes that we've found correlates to sales success. Because um, some people operate by rote; they get comfortable with a script, and they want to just you know go to work and punch a clock and read that script and and go home when they're done, and not really care about what they're doing. But when you're interviewing people, and you can find out what kind of questions they ask, and you can gauge how curious are they? How well are they listening to you? Um, do they really want to learn? And will they care about what their customers need more than their interest in making a sales number or hitting a quota? Um, and if you could really start to align and look for those types of characteristics, and curiosity is not one that would have hit the top of the list, but some of the recent research that we've seen over the last year or two really correlates to that. Um, and then you could, from there, you can get into more of the mechanics of making sure that you have the right compensation plan, making sure that you've aligned incentives. Uh, the worst thing you can do is take a good, naturally good salesperson and give them the wrong type of comp plan that disincentivizes them from selling more, you know, or starts to take away things that they feel like they've earned over time. Um, so lots of times, that's why plans get reset every year, because depending upon what new organizational goals and objectives there are, you have to make sure that whatever you're doing really transcends into each individual salesperson's plans and their objectives. And you got to make sure that their goals are realistic and achievable. Because the last thing you want is to give somebody a big goal. And, you know, let's say we gave Nicole, we gave you a million dollar quota, but there is no way 
impossible that you don't even have enough market to come close to that. And let's say you blow it out and you do a half a million dollars when maybe you should have done 200,000. If you had a goal of a million, it looks like you failed when in fact you did a great job. Um, and that's what the, that's why if you do your corporate planning up front and then you divvy it up based upon how much you're looking to grow by when and all those other characteristics, that'll also help you figure out how many people do you need and what roles do you need them in in order to do that. Sometimes it's not even a matter of having the right salesperson. Um, they could be great, but if your sale requires uh, support, you know, or in software, we often have people who are demo specialists or product specialists um, or system engineers. Um, you know, if you don't have the right supporting staff and, you know, uh, your team is going to fail, even if you have the best salesperson in the world. So a lot of that is really understanding what it's going to take to support your clients, both in a pre-sales and then in a post-sales scenario. So lots of times in the service business, like you guys have and like I have, uh, a lot of times we'll bring the people who are account managers and people who they might in another business may not have ever even been introduced to the client until after the sale. We'll oftentimes introduce them before the sale so that they can start to build a relationship and get an idea of who's going to be servicing them on an ongoing basis. And if that helps instill confidence, that could actually shorten your sales cycle. So there's so many attributes and so many dynamics that have to come into it. Um, a lot of them are, you know, are standard across any business. And some you really have to tweak according to the dynamics of your own specific business. Do you find like geography plays any part in that process? As in like if you're uh region to region you know you're talking mm -hmm. about different cultures and and even an accent for instance sure. do, you, do you do you find targeting specific salespeople to those particular regions that, that are more cohesive makes more sense it, it absolutely does and uh, because at the end of the day people buy from people um and people form relationships with people and I, I always use a joke, you know, to me, the joke is, you know, we, we actually rate our clients and, and we say, um, you know, how, how excited are you to take on this new one? And my test is a real simple one. You know, if I'm out on a business, if I'm on, out on the road for business and, you know, it's sort of an obligation, I'm out with a client and I have to go have dinner with them on a Tuesday night, I, I call it my Tuesday, Saturday rule. I, I will ask myself, is this the sort of person that if I was on my own time and it was Saturday night and it was my wife and me and this person and their spouse going out, is that something I would look forward to or dread? <laughs> and if yep. the answer too often Smart. is dread. I don't want to hang out with this person. <laughs> <laughs> well, and sometimes, you don't, and sometimes you don't have a choice. You know, sometimes, you know, you're in a situation where you're, um, where you're either a little bit desperate or you gotta, you know, you, you can't be so idealistic. But once you start to hit stride and you've proven that you're successful and that you have achieved value for certain people, that's when you get to be a little bit pickier. And some people who like will either beat you up on price and try and negotiate on every single thing. Sometimes the most powerful word you have is no, and you just walk away. And I still remember the I still remember firing one of my clients um, who actually owed us about fifty thousand dollars, and I just could not stand the thought of going into one more meeting with him. And I basically said, "Nope, we're done, we're done." And he's like, and suddenly his whole tune changed. He's like, mm -hmm. "What are you, What are you talking about? You work for me?" I said, uh, "No, this is a free country." <laughs> I said, "I said." I, I'm not happy about this, but you don't need to pay me the last invoice for all the work that we've already done because clearly you don't mm. value it. I said, clearly you do not value it. So and he's like, well, I didn't say that. I said, well, no, you did say that. You, 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 you just insulted my graphic designer. I said, you did say that. So I'm just done. I'm just not doing it anymore. And it was incredible. The, the level of respect that you know, uh, that myself and one of my partners got from our people who were really being abused by this account. 
it, it was so it, it it was such a, a, a it was a defining moment for our company because people realized we had their back and we weren't going to subject them to conditions that we found to be intolerable and yeah we took a revenue hit and yeah it got a little lean the next month or two but when that but when we came back from that we had a team that was so gelled and you know just knew that we had established some standards that we were going to live by and that's incredibly powerful when you when you can do it and um you know you hope to get them right right from the beginning but sometimes you don't and it's just as important to know when you have to call it and and say this is no matter what i do this is not really salvageable and even if it is salvageable i'm not so sure i want it to be salvageable <laughs> The most important part for a business owner is to remember two words. It's opportunity cost because everything you do has an opportunity cost for something else. It is incredible how many people forget that. When you're out chasing dollars, you forget that every dollar in, you know, cost you something. You know, it's either going to cost you time to uh, to work with somebody or it's going to cost you, you know, hard expenses. But you know, every, every dollar, every, and that's why when we talk about strategic growth, there's such a thing as growing in the way you want to grow, not in the way somebody else has defined it for you. And it's, it's a fine line sometimes, but if you do it right, you can, you can really put some, you can put the right milestones in place and, and make sure that those strategies that you wrote out on paper can really execute when you go, when it's time to start living your business we and we keep using the word right ironically but going <laughs> back to your matrix of the four rights that's not something that you just do in the beginning you can go back and reevaluate your business relationship through those four metrics again and maybe decide i don't want to do business with this person that you, it has to be right that's it's there in the name it's the rights you know so you might find the guy at the top to be intolerable which means now you don't have the right decision maker on your side. So reevaluate, you know? And you're absolutely right, Dan, because things do change. And that's why businesses redo their planning cycles constantly. And that's our, our last step after execute and optimize the ongoing when you go to scale your business is what we call evaluate and improve. And there are different metrics. It's not just numbers. It's not just metrics. It's, it's being able to look at what are those characteristics that made me successful? You might find like, I've been in a lot of software businesses and um, you know we'll have one successful product line uh, selling software to one set of decision makers. And we go, ooh, you know what? If we develop this as an adjacent thing, we can go back into all these same accounts and just be calling on Jim down the hall instead of uh, uh, Peter who's over in this department. Um, so when you're doing that, you pull your matrix back out and you figure out, well, what's different in this scenario versus the other? And some of them, some of the rights might carry right over and some of the others might be radically different. And you can have a very different experience when you're, uh, you know, unless you've thought about that. So you're, you are right to think about that, not just for new, you know, for new products or new services, but even just in evaluating how much business am I going to do with this organization next year versus what I did last year and what things have changed. And often, even in how we do prospecting, lots of times if you've built a good relationship, some of the strategies that we help our clients with is we do LinkedIn relationship maps and we figure out how do you map the, the lifetime value of a good relationship. And in many businesses, you'll see people who um, will pick up and move to other companies, but still do the same kind of role, or they'll get promoted into uh, a newer role where they have higher degrees of decision making. And you were, and you knew them back when they were a middle manager, and you did a, a stellar job for them. Um, that gives you the right to call on them in their new role, and as, especially if you've been authentic and have kept up your relationship, that could be better than any new cold call that you're ever going to get because you've already established yourself. Yep. So it's those sorts of things that, you know, you can, 
it's not rocket science and it's not magic. But if you do it smartly and you really understand the value of the relationships that you build and you truly are genuine in nurturing them, uh, it's amazing what an asset that that can be for you. Don't they say that it's it's cheaper to retain a client than get a new one? <laughs> it, I've heard that somewhere before. Yeah, in many places. Just to keep that relationship up and keep them and keep selling to that person. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because think about it. When we, even in the back to the growth calculator what that we talked about in terms of sizing and planning, we put different, businesses will oftentimes put a different assumption in for what is the sales cycle time for an upselling an existing account with a new product or service versus a brand new customer. And lots of times that difference in sales cycle, you know, it could be a month or two of an upsell versus a year or two of a new account, depending upon what you do. So you're, you're, you're 100% right. Now, you, you typically need a mix of both. You can't just rely on doing the same yeah. thing that you did last year for the same people, because if you did a good job, they may not need you anymore. <laughs> they may be past. <laughs> wow. You just have to do just a good enough job so they still need you. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, that's funny yeah but it's true it's really true and you know it, it's a joke i mean you know you you've you've got young kids most of what you need to know in business you can just learn from from your kids you know <laughs> <laughs> oh no we're doomed then <laughs> yeah, you're doomed. no but seriously like when you see behaviors that you like reward them <laughs> when mm. you see behaviors that you don't like figure out what you can do to 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 get them to change. Sometimes it requires an incentive. Sometimes it requires locking them in their room. Uh, I mean, it really is. It, it's amazing how how much of, of business really replicates life. And, um, you know, and, and the most important part out of everything that, that we're talking about, and I wish I would have understood this when I was younger, is you, you really, part of that opportunity cost is, you got to make sure you're having fun. If you're not waking up every day and you're not genuinely jazzed about saying, hey, it's Tuesday, I'm going to work. Absolutely. Uh, you know, there's too many people that have to do, you know, are, are in situations where they don't have a choice. You know, they have financial situations or other things that cause them to have to do things that they genuinely don't enjoy. But if you're a business owner and you're doing something Hopefully it's because it's not just money motivated. If you genuinely enjoy what you're doing, you're going to do better work and the money part's going to come just by a natural byproduct of, of you being good at mm -hmm. what you do and, and having that enthusiasm. If you're, if you're in a, a sour mood and, you know, you just hate everything about what you're doing, uh, you know, you've really got, I'm just looking at Dan right now. <laughs> But by the time this episode airs, he'll be out of his job. He's actually giving his two-week notice on Friday <laughs> so he can stay home and build this. And it's terrifying, but it's going to be good. Well, it, it's terrifying, but a little terror is a good thing. You know, a little, is, a little yes. fear could be a good motivator. Uh, Absolutely. The more important thing is, Dan, when you, when you take that negativity out of, of your life and you got you get to replace it with the things you want to replace it with and if you get if you've ever read the book the secret it's the law of attraction and i work with a lot of venture capitalists as well and they can see through people who are going through the motions versus people yeah. who are genuinely excited and motivated i mean you can watch it on shark tank you could see the mm -hmm. the people oh, yeah. who get it and and you know who are living and breathing what they want to do and 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 are devoted to it and you can see it in in so many aspects and so once you do that and once you make that change yeah it's scary and you may not be you know that you may hit some bumps in the road but if you genuinely enjoy and you believe in your skills and you're surrounding yourself with good people who are compliments to what you do as opposed to clones of what you do, um, you're going to build, you, you, you're going to build something successful. Um, and, 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 and culture, we didn't really talk about, but, you know, 
culture is something that you get to pick. If you're the business owner and you know there are behaviors that you find to be uh, disgraceful or <laughs> things that you've seen and witnessed or you know even ways you've been treated, it's your company. You get the right to define what the right behaviors are and the wrong. And I actually used to do this in, in several of my companies. Um, I'll send it to you at some point, Nicole. It's a little bill of rights. And it's five key things. Genius. Five, five <laughs> key things that everybody in the company is entitled to. But for every right comes a responsibility. So, you know, you have the right to, you're entitled to respect. But the flip side is you have to show respect. And, you know, that doesn't mean that you're, you're not allowed to debate or argue about things. But at the end of the day, you have to acknowledge that there is going to be a decision that's going to be made. And you may not be in favor of it initially. But if you're of the right mindset, you're going to support what that decision is. And you're going to do your best to, uh, to work within it if it's been made in a fair and representative way. So, you know, we like to do that. And, and I've had a couple of businesses that I've walked into where I've had to turn them around and they had really, really uh, pathetic cultures or they never even or they never even paid attention to culture. I was once part of a management team that got brought into a business that had brought in seven million dollars of venture capital. Um, nobody on the management team was even talking to each other. Six million of the seven million was gone by the day I landed, my plane landed. And, um, and we had to retrench a company from 150 people down to 10 in order to, oh. re, in order to rebuild it. But when we started to rebuild it, we got to build it with the right value system that we thought was going to be important. And then once we did that at 10 people, it became a heck of a lot easier because you knew what the profile was of the types of people who you wanted in your business, not the ones you inherited. Those, thankfully, we got rid of when we had to take it down. So, you know, the, the other thing is to remember that, you know, we're really fortunate to live in a country where we have freedom. And, you know, <laughs> not, not saying that every day is going to be easy, but you get to make these choices and, and you have to live with the choices that you make. So you know, if, you, if you can do that and really take the time, no matter what your business is, even if you're a sole proprietor, um, you may eventually hire an assistant. Think about what those attributes are in that assistant that's going to enable you to do the 10 other things that you can't do when you're on your own and make sure that, um, that, that you're really careful when you're making those hires because they're going to be a reflection on you ultimately. So um, anything, uh, any final thoughts you wanted to add, Mark, before we close up? No, this was just fun. I mean, what's fun about this is, I, you know, I got to talk to the two of you before you ever even started your business together, when you were just, when it was just a seed of an idea. And if you remember sitting around my kitchen table, talking about what your aspirations were and how you were going to do it, I was a little skeptical. I, you know, I, I, I questioned, you know, did you really know what you were getting into? But you've really proven to me that you've, you've done your homework, you've studied, you've adapted a lot of the things that you've learned through your other businesses. I mean, Nicole, from your photography and, and, you know, everything that you guys have done, you're taking those experiences and bringing them together and you're really making it happen now. So to me that there's nothing greater than that. And, and you're still at the early stages of it, but as long as you don't lose sight of what those characteristics are and you create, you know, nurture this business, just like you're nurturing your children and maybe the business will listen a little better than the kids will. <laughs> the business is doomed if we nurture them. Like we No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. No, but I mean, but, but sometimes you don't, sometimes when you're in it, you lose that perspective and you need somebody from the outside looking in and saying, Hey, guess what? Guys? Absolutely. You know, you're you don't, don't go, don't be down on yourself. You're actually doing this. And, you know, and it, sometimes you just need a little reminder of that because as soon as things start to click, and you get that right, that's what enables luck to take over. So it's not always about being how smart you are or how strategic you are. I mean, yeah, there are things you can think about, but if you do the right things from a planning standpoint, 
then when luck is able to take over, you've got all the right characteristics in place. And yeah, well, and, and, and as Dan said, it, you're never done. Um, you know, the reason why managers get paid is, uh, you know, <laughs> it, things just don't work by autopilot, you know, unless, unless you've got something that the world can't live without and you don't have to innovate it. I mean, you know, look at Apple. Everybody has a phone, but if, if Apple stopped innovating after the iPhone 3, uh, <laughs> they wouldn't have a business right now. So, you know, it, it gets back to before they ever opened that store, they did sizing and planning. They did targeting and positioning. <laughs> I mean, they did, they yep. followed their version of, of a sequence. And then when it came time to scale, and once they had the model, it's like, okay, we got this. You know, we've tested this in Denver. Um, we could do Chicago. Okay, we could do LA. We could do New York. Um, we could do Moscow. <laughs> we, we, we know it. Yeah, there's going to be adaptation in each of those geographies, but we know what, uh, what about our model works. And they're still figuring out what doesn't work and they're making improvements. Um, and that's the whole idea of business. Um, but the reason why they are successful now is they've got momentum. And that momentum didn't happen by accident. It happened by them paying attention to what they wanted to be. And they eliminated a lot of the junk that they needed to get rid of. And it's really hard for some businesses. I've been in some businesses that have grown by acquisition and we've had uh, you know, so many legacy products and nobody ever wants to give them up. You know, you have two customers on this one legacy platform and it's like, come on people, you know, we've got one more year to get off of this thing. Uh, uh, you know, because nobody wanted to give up the revenue. And I was like, you're not thinking about opportunity cost. What if we had that engineer who's supporting that product for those two customers working on our new developments? What more could we be getting? And when companies start to figure that out and, and they start to think about things holistically, that's when you can start to really uh, scale an organization. And that's when the fun starts. <laughs> anyway, this was fun. This was, this was really a good time. I, I've enjoyed it. Uh, I've enjoyed, and, and I hope that for the, for for the hopefully more than 10 people in your audience who are out there listening um they can get something out of it and you know you can you can share at some point nicole you can share my email or share our website and i really encourage people to use some of the free tools and to even just study it uh so that they can glean whatever aspects that that we've learned or or are teaching others into whatever their business is, uh, even even small ones, you know, some of these things are are really universally applicable. Perfect. Well, thank you for coming on, Mark. We appreciate it. That was great. It was fun. Now let's do the come to Vegas next time. Thanks for listening to the Attention Seekers podcast. Hit that subscribe button to get new content each week. And if you want even more attention, follow us on Instagram at Attention Seekers Podcast. See you there.